This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. The education of our children has been hit hard by the COVID-19 pandemic, by the lockdown it has prompted and by the closing of schools. The partial return to learning in June has revealed deep divisions among the key stakeholders and confirmed weaknesses in our ability as a country to address educational inequality and neglect. And yet, in dark and difficult times, there is always an opportunity to build something better. Welcome to Beyond Corona, South Africa and the world after the pandemic. It's brought to you by Kaya FM in association with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. I'm John Pullman. In our fifth episode, can we use the coronavirus crisis to build a more efficient and equitable education system going forward? Can we seize the moment to close the gaps in essentials like clean water and classrooms and innovations like online learning? Or will we just fall back into old patterns that stifle the life chances of so many young South Africans? Let's welcome our guest. Professor Mikey Yankees is an Associate Professor in Information Systems at the University of the Western Cape. Professor Yankees, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Nick Spall is a Senior Research Fellow at the University of Stellenbosch. Dr. Spall, great to have you as well. Yes, hi. Thanks for having me. Let's start with where we are right now. Differing views on when and how learners should return to the classroom. So we agree that we need to work extremely hard to comply in order to prevent the infections because that's a condition around which cabinet allowed us to open to say when you say you are going back to schools like all everybody else is going to back to work. Rule number one, you have to prevent infections in your workspace. So which means you have to put every measure in place that there is no infection in the workspace. So there are steps that we have, have been taken outlined in the directives to help us prevent the spread of the virus. Every office and school must have easily accessible and sufficient quantities of hand sanitizers based on the number of learners, of educators, officials or persons who access the offices or school entrances. Offices and schools must have facilities for washing of hands with soap and clean water. The cleaning of surfaces and equipment is mandatory. A mask is a, a mask is a must in every instance. Offices and schools are required to provide a minimum of two cloth masks to learners and educators, officials and support staff. We have observed that schools have been working very hard also to configure the physical environments, from staff rooms to classrooms and the play areas. This is not a matter of choice. All of us must ensure that we comply with the social distancing requirements in order to comply with the health and safety requirements. That was Basic Education Minister Angie Mutsecha. There are other views. Well, all that we are saying is that it is happening, albeit at not necessarily the expected pace, which means it is happening. But now the challenge is that there are other deeper challenges that had already been in the system that also have to be unlocked first even before you can talk about the minimum uh, hygiene package such as the PPEs, etc. So we are receiving reports that indeed the PPE is arriving uh, in other schools, but then we are also getting reports that in certain instances it is still at the second offices, which means therefore that it is not necessarily getting to the size where it matters the most. So we, rem- we retain our position that there are still many, many challenges that need to be dealt with and 
the Monday timeline for the first batch of learners to even come back into the school is unrealistic by and large because the system uh, is not going to be ready in majority. The thoughts of Tolani Fakude of the South African Democratic Teachers Union. Professor Yankees, let's start with the immediate decisions that we have to make. Should we be trying to rescue as much as possible of the 2020 school year? And if so, how? I think um, the current COVID-19 pandemic has brought to the fore the real inequalities and disparities within our education system. Because I think the challenge of taking decisions of going back to school is largely based on also the infrastructure that the different schools have to cope with um, what the Department of Basic Education actually requires to be in place for learners to actually come back. So I think in, in, in the department actually taking a decision along with parents and civil society on whether we should salvage the rest of the year, the reality of if kids remain at home, will they be able to continue learning when only 20% of them, um, according to the minister, are actually um, getting education in the form of online learning or television or radio, then raises a question then that what happens to the children who then are not able to access all these mediums for continuing to learn. So I think it's a, it's a genuine and valid debate um, from parents to say, um, what then happens if, if these children continue to remain at home and are unable to access learning? But equally, we have uh, the realities of many families um, not having access to good health care systems. If a family is hit with COVID-19 and uh, a pandemic or the disease gets into their home, yes. what happens to those families in that context? Next ball, presumably it's more than just time lost when children are away from the classroom for a long time. What are the other more long-term consequences of significant gaps in teaching and learning? Sure. So I think whenever schools are closed, and in our case, uh, it wasn't only schools that were closed, but society as a whole with the lockdown, there are a number of other things that we need to look at when we're thinking about the impact on kids. So this would include things like malnutrition. Nine million kids normally get a, a, a school meal when they go to school every day in South Africa. Uh, depression and anxiety for children, declining rates of immunizations and vaccine provision, uh, as well as indirect mortality from avoiding clinics. So we're starting to see that uh, around the world, parents are less likely to take their children to either hospitals or clinics, uh, both for regular procedures, but also just for um, things that they would normally go to a clinic for, that they're now afraid of COVID and then they don't go. Uh, so we're starting to see rises in indirect mortality. And these are all in addition to the learning losses and the long-term impacts on particularly young children's cognitive development. Uh, because missing six months uh, of a cognitive stimulation at a school setting, as well as the social stimulation and play that young children get uh, at ECD centers, can be really severe if you think about that in the, the, tra- the trajectory of a child's life. Um, given how fertile their brains are when they're especially young. Marky Yankees, I mean, a lot of people are talking about uh, online learning um, and often the understanding of it, of it can be a little bit simplistic. What needs to be in place for online learning to be effective? Because surely it involves more than just access to data and devices. No doubt about it. I think in the South African context, and I suppose many developing country contexts, what we've observed is um, the realities of inequalities that make the whole ecosystem of online learning very difficult. 
infrastructure, stable connectivity. Many places within the country don't have stable connectivity. Um, we have really high data costs, which make it very difficult for children to actually be able to get online. And then we do, often don't have content which is contextualized to the South African context. Um, and every year or every um, uh, period when the Stats SA um, household surveys come out, we realize that there's two points that stand out. Many homes um, have access to a mobile phone as opposed to a desktop, as opposed to a tablet. Yes. People will often access the internet largely on their mobile phones than on um, other means and mediums. So the reality is that um, many interactions of children with any form of digital platforms of learning will first be on the mobile phone. And then we have the biggest, which is it needs to really be a central focus, is do we train teachers to be able to integrate technology within the teaching and learning context? And many of our teachers, which are in service, did not have the opportunity to get well-trained on not seeing technology as a separate component, but as a component that can go into a history lesson, into a geography lesson, into every other lesson. So you see a lot of schools having computer labs, but having a thinking that computer labs are only for tech-related subjects when they can be used for every single subject. So we need to fix the ecosystem and equally from a policy perspective as telecommunication companies, the moment we start introducing e-learning, should we not be zero rating websites? Should websites not be actually free yes. that have educational content? Next, Paul, I mean, one of the, I suppose possibly positive things that have come out of a dire situation is that we've seen an accelerated push to equip schools with things they should have had ages ago, sanitation, water, less crowded classrooms and so on. How do we sustain that in a post-corona South Africa? Because uh, many people's concerns is that this is emergency thinking, but it's not necessarily policy priority. Yeah, I mean, I think that COVID-19 is an opportunity for us as a country to reflect and acknowledge that in the 25 years uh, that we've had of democracy, we've actually managed to provide all schools with basic infrastructure like running water, electricity and safe toilet facilities. That's not really coming to the fore because, for example, the teacher unions are saying we're not going to go back to school unless there's some water to wash our hands with or uh, hand sanitizer uh, or basic toilet facilities. Now, that's, that's something that should have been in place all along. And yet the, the most recent data that we have in 2017 showed that 26% of schools did not have running water uh, and 12% didn't have electricity. So I think that this, uh, the COVID-19 crisis is really foregrounding the inequalities in infrastructure pr- provision, both at home, uh, what Prof. Yankees mentioned earlier around um, you know, 80% of households not having a computer in their house. Yes. But the same infrastructure inequalities are seen at schools. Uh, where if you live in a leafy suburb or you're attending a school that charges fees, uh, you have basic infrastructure in place. Whereas if you're in a poorer province or in rural areas, uh, the government has failed to provide those schools with the most basic forms of infrastructure. So I think harnessing the anger and frustration uh, of many of those parents uh, and maybe also just uh, making it more publicly known uh, that, that those situation, that is the situation in those schools, I think will have an enduring impact and a positive one. Mikey Yankees, I mean, education is about so much more than curriculum and, and, and sharing it with learners and getting back a sense of how much they've understood. 
how much are our learners going to suffer from schools if they're not getting that mix of education in the broad sense, sport, music, and the playground as a place of informal but important education? There is no doubt that learners need to be stimulated um, in various ways. And learners are also quite social. So not having a peer support um, component of the learning environment, not having the social interactions component of the learning environment, and not being able to um, um, stimulate. I, th- I think when we, we look at the, the, the disparities in the different contexts, you will realize that for some children, the only opportunity they have to get sports facilities will be in a school context. So any learning that relates to sports will not actually happen. So definitely, um, I think upon the opening or return to the the new normal, which will definitely not be the normal that we were used to pre-COVID-19, teachers in schools will realize the significant gaps that come from context where children continue to be stimulated learning at home and the children who lacked that sort of stimulation in the home context. Next, Paul, I mean, one of the things that that is of of huge concern is uh, the South African teaching cohort, as I understand it, is ageing. And to get your views on on Mikey Yankee's earlier point about the need to train teachers, not only in how to use technology, but in their approach to technology as a teaching aid rather than a subject. What's your sense of the ability and willingness of South Africa's teachers to take on what will be potentially a profoundly new reality? Um, To be frank, I'm not optimistic uh, that particularly older teachers um, are that we're going to see them take up technology in any meaningful way. And that's for two things. Uh, One is a reluctance to change, but the other one is that we haven't provided any meaningful learning opportunities for these teachers as to how to use technology. Uh, I mean, in the Eastern Cape, one of the contexts that I'm familiar in because we we work there, uh, all foundation phase teachers were given access to a computer. They were given a computer, uh, but very minimal training. I mean, after teachers had had these computers for two years, when we were doing training, we showed them how to unmute their laptops so that they could they could play a video and and learn and listen. Whereas for two years, their laptop had been muted and they didn't know how to unmute it. So I don't think that that COVID-19 is suddenly going to thrust South Africa into a technological future because we haven't put the investment into training. uh, And that's both pre-service at universities as well as in-service. So no, I'm not optimistic about that. Marky, I mean, one of the things you you raised earlier is appropriate local content available online. And one of the key issues there I would have thought would be language. Uh, You wrote a very interesting piece posted on theconversation.com about a maths app you developed that enabled learners to move between languages. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the app, but, but more importantly, tell us what your learnings from that were that might be applied as we move into this post corona period. Um, I think the conversation about electronic learning under general in South Africa has been going on for quite a long time, even before the COVID years. And that is why a lot of the research that is coming from South African context is largely made uh, uh, based on mobile um, platforms for the very reason that we are often a mobile first country, meaning our first interactions of technology will largely be on mobile phones. And therefore you've seen uh, a large growth of mobile theories um, and pedagogy surrounding the use of mobile phones in the classroom context, largely growing, especially from emerging markets. 
And um, I think in my, my, my years over um, in researching, one of the things that we observed was that many families largely had access to mobile phones. And so we wanted to see how we can enable um, content to be available that supports teaching and learning within the classroom context um, for learners. And in sitting down to looking at our uh, benchmarking test, language kept on coming up as one of the biggest deterrents um, in, 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 in a way, a barrier for the performance of learners. So you could see that a child would come from a context where, for example, myself, my first language is Tijuana. Right. And the context in which they learn is English. And so from the educational context and the linguistic concept, context, there's a concept called code switching where a learner now um, switches back to their home language to better understand what is it that they're being taught in a much more easier way to try and comprehend, especially for things such as word problems within the mathematics context. And what I wanted to do was to use technology to enable that switch to happen instead of just availing. So the initial perspective was, oh, um, learners were not getting textbooks on time. Learners were not getting the necessary material within the classroom context. And we wanted to see that if we look at the devices that they are already in their household and looking at a much more affordable way of availing the content to them, how could they get access to mathematics learning content? Right. And not just in the form of text, but in the form of quizzes and tests and games that can stimulate their learning. And we were largely looking at underprivileged schools, working with teachers who probably don't have a context of having used technology within their classroom context, but using a more supportive approach that uses change management approaches that understands. I mean, when an organization implements technology, there's a change management um, uh, uh, approach that's used within the organization and a continuous support. So we wanted to see that if we apply the same perspectives that you'll probably apply within a business context, and you take a school in that context, understanding yes. that it's not a once-off training, will it have an impact on the performance in the teaching and learning process? And so we worked with different schools in different provinces to support the teaching and learning process. But indeed, I agree that we are in need of context, which uh, content which is um, contextualized to the South African context, understanding that many learners will not be first language speakers and therefore they need to have alternative content in English and alternative yes. in their native languages. Next, Paul, I mean, how good are we as a country at making those kinds of changes in developing new materials? Because my concern would be that there'll be a big push on online learning in uh, a technical sense. So there'll be ordering of lots and lots of tablets and uh, perhaps contributions from tech companies around data costs and so on. But presumably if the teachers are not ready and if the material is not appropriate and well designed specifically for South African learners, we might be spending money that will not reap any kind of educational dividend. Yeah, so I think your summary there is actually uh, a very accurate one of the international literature on technology, both in developed countries and developing countries for education. So broadly, there were three waves of this. The first one we could call the hardware wave, which is like one laptop per child. Yes. We just need to provide tablets, that sort of thing. It was evaluated and shown no improvements in learning outcomes. Uh, in Uruguay, various other countries, there was zero improvement in learning outcomes based on just distributing physical hardware. 
The second wave was, okay, it's not just about hardware, it's about software. We need programs and content that children can relate to. It needs to be in their language. But even that, large-scale evaluations of those sorts of programs did not yield big increases in learning outcomes. Uh, There are none that I can point to. The latest thinking on this is what's kind of novelly called warmware or people, uh, which is unless you can invest in the people that are meant to be using this technology, and that's both the children or uh, in many cases, as the teacher, unless the teacher feels empowered to use a particular platform or software or device in their teaching, they basically won't do it and they won't do it effectively. So it's not only about providing the hardware, it's not only about having accurate uh, or, or appropriate software, it's actually also about investing heavily in the training of teachers to feel equipped and confident to use those new methods and pedagogies. Uh, and we haven't ticked any of those. Not one, not two, and definitely not three, unfortunately. John Pullman is exploring the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the trajectory of political and socio-economic development. Marky, I mean, one of the things about school is the opportunity for a teacher to have a quiet word with a learner who's perhaps struggling with uh, with science or seems to be struggling for other reasons, perhaps difficulties at home, uh, bullying on the playground and so on. If we move to... Uh, a situation where distance learning is a greater part of the mix. How much are we going to lose in terms of teachers helping along learners who who really need a personal uh, intervention rather than a technical one? I think we need to be careful on seeing the role of technology within schools and within a classroom context. Um, I think we need to look at it more from a blended learning approach as opposed to a completely um, online learning approach or distance learning um, approach. Because uh, bringing in technology within a, a context, it, 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 it's, it should be seen as a functional tool that in essence enhances the resources, the resources that learners have access to. And I'll give you a simple contextual example. There's a particular com- uh, organization of a young startup who came from an underprivileged school and he didn't have a science lab in his school. And he decided to create um, augmented reality um, applications that, for example, can enable learners to see stimulated um, chemistry experiments. So in that school um, where he, he, he studied, he then took that application to that particular school. And having understood once he got to university, the power of having such simulations within the school context to yes. supplement and complement what the teacher was doing in the classroom context. He then took it back there. So I think we need to position the, 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 the role of technology quite carefully in that it's going to supplement the resources that learners um, have access to. It's a functional tool that can enhance teaching and learning. It does not replace the role of the teacher. It does not replace the role of the interaction between the teacher and the learner. And instead, um, the focus then gets into what is really um, deterring the learner from performing well and based on you know the many exercises you've been through, either paper-based or online, I've identified that this is a serious problem. Can we sit down together to further get into it? So I think when we have a conversation about technology, it needs to be positioned in a way that it doesn't necessarily mean that um, we will completely move away from um, our traditional classroom context. But in essence, it's a functional tool. I personally have not seen a country which has, especially for basic education, yes. moved away from the traditional learning um, classroom. I mean, even I've, I've worked a lot with uh, schools in Singapore, and we still have a traditional uh, perspective of teaching and learning, but the technology actually complements 
that approach. Dr. Spall, I mean, the return to the classroom is eventually once all the grades come back and we, we have to assume that that's going to happen eventually, is going to hit the wall of the constraints and problems that we face pre-corona. And the one that comes to mind um, most quickly for me is around the issue of social distancing in classrooms. We do not at this point have enough classrooms so that and, and perhaps not even enough teachers so that we can have decently sized uh, learning environments for our children children. How, how do you have a sense of how many classrooms we're short of at the moment as a country? I don't have that uh, number offhand and I don't actually think the department knows that number offhand. Yes. Uh, it's not only um, classrooms, it's also things like class sizes. So we still have some classes in South Africa which have more than 60 children in them. So even if you have a classroom, you have too many kids in that classroom uh, to, to space them out. Um, but I also think that we need to uh, weigh up the costs and benefits of these different proposals uh, around how to deal with COVID uh, and schooling um, because it's not going away. Uh, the, the latest estimates are that if there's a vaccine, it will only be available um, halfway through or towards the end of next year. And if we say that children can't go back to school unless they can practice social distancing, um, I feel like that's going to be the, the the largest cost of that is going to be felt by the poorest students because they are the ones that are going to be in the largest class sizes and have the, the lowest amount of infrastructure. So in a way, uh, a policy that's meant to be in the best interests of the child is actually going to have the highest costs uh, on those poor learners. And I think for many of them, their home situation and circumstances, uh, they also can't practice social distancing at home. If we look at their living situation, how many people they're living with and the size of their house, it's not as if they're practicing social distancing at home, but they wouldn't be able to do it at school. Uh, I think we need to start being realistic that it's not going to be feasible for particularly for young children to practice social distancing in a large number of schools that shouldn't stop us from going back to school. Uh, Prof. Yankees, Nick Spall uh, mentioned home context, the overcrowded circumstances that millions of South African children live in. And that's an obstacle both to traditional learning spaces where you can do your homework, good lighting and so on. But presumably it raises challenges as well for e-learning. And I wonder if there's global best practice for how and where e-learning works best in those kind of socio-economically stressed communities. What can you share with us on that? I think the, the context that Nick is alluding to is a reality for children across the country and has been for many, many years. And even though we work with different schools, particularly and and support them with uh, the introduction of technology within the classroom context, we realize that many of these children will not go back to a home context that will enable um, um, seamless e-learning, electronic learning at home. So I'm going to give uh, an example of a particular school, which in COVID-19 we've been working quite closely with and was telling us how they've been adapting to it. So the particular principal was talking about how teachers have been compressing videos and compressing content and sometimes taking pictures from workbooks on um, their mobile phones and actually sharing it within WhatsApp. One of the teachers um, had sent us a, a video where they actually took a piece of paper, stuck it on the wall, and taught, introduced a topic to children, took, a, uh, took that video, compressed it, and shared it on WhatsApp with parents to actually share it with the learners. That is not probably an ideal method of learning, 
but it was great to see the manner in which um, the school was responding to the context of the learners. And this particular principal that I was engaging with was saying that he then went and called different parents to find out how many children actually had access to WhatsApp. And they prepared actual printing materials for the children who didn't have access to WhatsApp that once the evening of lockdown comes, he asked the parents to come and fetch the printed material for that. So there's been examples of how um, certain forms of electronic learning have been used, even in refugee, for example, camps where there's uh, situations where countries are are being hit by war. But I wanted to, to highlight this particular context because this is in the a pandemic context in the South African context, showing how a school principal in a particular community had looked at what they have access to and adapted to enable some form of stimulating um, learning in this current pandemic. We we did a show a little while back on the fact that the school's I Stedford was cancelled and we came across uh, someone who worked at a school in an admin capacity who was the choir master. And what this teacher was doing was singing uh, the portions that he wanted the learners to learn, sending it on WhatsApp, and they would then sing their versions back to him. So lots of ingenuity out there. Ingenuity next ball will be critical because presumably we are going to have to make do with less money for absolutely everything post-corona. But I would think education uh, will be hit pretty hard as well. Where, where do we prioritize our spending? Do we focus on making our schools in their physical manifestation as livable as possible, or do we put the money into technology? So I think you're right in saying that there's going to be a financial squeeze. Uh, there already was a financial squeeze before uh, COVID-19 uh, came along. And part of that was that the budget allocations that have been made to education have not kept up with the increases in teacher salaries uh, over the last 10 years. So although there's been a massive increase in spending on education, there's been a slightly greater increase in teacher salaries over that same period. Uh, and I think that the expenditure around PPE and um, hand sanitizer and infrastructure requirements of schools means that Uh, provinces have had to redirect some of their budgets that would have been available for other things. Uh, When we go back uh, and these, these, we're getting to the new normal, I think what we need to prioritize is making sure that all schools have the basic infrastructure and primarily from a dignity point of view, uh, that it's it's undignified for children to be attending schools that don't have toilets, uh, for example. I think that's simply unacceptable and the department needs to set a realistic timeframe of say two to three years and say within these two years or three years, we have to eradicate every single uh, backlog we have on basic infrastructure, not libraries and laboratories and all of that, basic infrastructure like water, electricity and sanitation. Beyond that, I don't think that investing heavily in technology uh, is a wise use of resources. And the reason for that is we don't have evidence of technology investments leading to improvements uh, in children's learning outcomes. So until we have interventions and evaluations on a small scale of 50 or 100 or 200 schools that are showing improvements in learning outcomes as a result of rolling out a particular intervention of an app or a a tablet device or something like that that's going to improve the learning outcomes of kids, I think it would be imprudent and a waste of money to roll out technology across the whole country. Instead, I think we should be focusing our time and effort on improving the reading and numeracy abilities of particularly foundation phase children in the first three years of school, because those are the critical years where children acquire those skills that they need for the rest of their life. If we don't get that right, 
it basically doesn't matter what else we do get right. Marky, I want to go back to something we discussed earlier and teachers' engagement with technology. Uh, some of them, I would think, feel burdened by the necessity to learn a new thing while they're having to do assessments and masses of paperwork and so on. But I would imagine you've had positive experiences with teachers as well, embracing some of the ideas that you and your colleagues are generating. What's the tipping point that, that wins teachers over and, and in, in their willingness to see technology as a friend and, and not as a task? I think what, what we realize is the need for reform in higher learning institutions of how te- teachers are actually trained. Um, what we see with the younger um, students who are coming in who've already been trained is they've been using technology throughout their teaching uh, and learning education process. And they we find that they adapt much more quicker because when they were in university, a lot of the material that they were getting was already in digital format, was already online. So the issue of how they integrate technology within the classroom and when they integrate it, it doesn't become a challenge for them. But what we find when we work with teachers is it becomes much more easier when you also create a peer support for them where they innovate themselves and they also support each other within the learning process. So whatever intervention that we come in and and support the school, it doesn't become a once-off workshop where we... The technology is introduced and we walk away. We actually sit down with the school principal and find out what types of technology does their context um, um, do they have access to within their context? What type of skills would they like to learn? And more than anything, the innovation and the growth should be led by the schools, the school principal, and the teachers themselves. I think we see a much um, a better growth within that context as opposed to when we come with approaches that we think would work best. Because a one-size-fits-all approach of implementing technology within different schools in South Africa is very problematic. Where you have different skill sets, where you have different access to resources. Some schools have very expensive resources. The teachers yes. are highly skilled and highly trained. And those solutions for that school will probably not work in an underprivileged schools where you have a variance of skills and resources. Next, Paul, you, you spoke about uh, learners who, who may miss up to six months and possibly more of the academic year of 2020 uh, and, and saying that this might, uh, let's call it what it is, scar them in their educational careers and, and, and all the way into the labor market. There will have to be interventions around that. But before we intervene, presumably we need to understand what the damage is. Do, do, we, do we know generically what that damage would be? Or is some research going to be needed before we work out exactly how to respond? So I think uh, we should, uh, in the next, I would say, year or 18 months, we probably should have some idea empirically uh, of what those learning losses are. And that's based on data that was going to be collected anyway. So not only the matric data, but we have ongoing projects that measure learning outcomes of children in grades two, three, and four, for example. Uh, And we'd be able to see how much they learn compared to previous years on the same tests. So I think we would be able to estimate uh, what those losses are. Um, Whether or not we'll be able to remediate those losses uh, is difficult to think. Even if we do implement an intervention, how do you catch up six months of school as well as continue with schooling? Uh, I don't think it's feasible, for example, for the matrics for, of this year, if they do lose six months of schooling, uh, to have matric again next year. 
I think it would it would mess up too much of South Africa's uh, education and training pipeline when we think of the need to train new nurses, doctors, lawyers, accountants. Uh, if you don't have an incoming cohort into higher education, it would be very, very problematic and it would mess up the uh, the logistics of schools as well because where do you put all of those metrics? Because the, the grade 11s would have moved into metric as well. So I think there is some talk of trying to find ways of accommodating this. And obviously, South Africa is not the only one around the world that's experiencing yes. this problem. Uh, I mean, all countries are experiencing this problem. Um, but I think that what, what would be good is if the department recognizes that it probably does need to put in place um, measures I'm almost more worried about the increase in inequality than I am. If it was a uniform decline uh, of everyone, it wouldn't be as bad as what I suspect it's going to be, which is that the poorest learners will suffer the most. And in the most unequal country in the world, South Africa, we're going to see a rise in inequality. Professor Yankees, I mean, let's extend what Nick Spall was saying and take it into the university environment where not only are you researching, but I'm sure you're involved with the teaching aspects of it as well. I mean, if we're going to say that the class of 2020, university first years of 2021, need to have adjustments made in some way or another to accommodate uh, what they've suffered uh, due to the coronavirus pandemic, Presumably, there's a knock-on effect all the way through their university life, because if you make adjustments for them in first year, you would have to make something equivalent in second year and so on. Is the university starting to think about that? Because these are your in, this is going to be your next intake, and eventually these are going to be your graduates. No doubt about it. I think universities are often quite good in adapting to the challenges that face basic education. And I'll give you examples of um, uh, bridging programs that were created by universities that give students, for example, spacing. If, if, if in a traditional sense, a student um, used to have to do six courses within a year, if we understand the context at which they were coming in from matric, universities then later adapted to say that, no, you'll have to do only two, two courses, but there'll be um, supplementary courses that you'll have to do to try and bridge the gap. So we've seen different models across different universities over the years actually adapting to the basic education challenges. And I think those conversations at this moment need to be fostered between both um, basic education and higher education to say that considering that the children are coming in with these gaps, how will we then adapt as we have over the years adapted to considering the, the type of knowledge that children already have access to and how do we make sure that it doesn't create a knock-on effect throughout their whole university life? Um, so things um, such as uh, um, holiday programs that we, we we put in place within universities. Uh, bridging programs that we put in within universities. These are the sort of examples of programs that considering what's happening this year, we need to have those conversations about next 10 years to come. Next, Paul, we're coming to the end of our conversation. So in conclusion, your highest hopes, because there is potential to get something good out of this, and your deepest fears in whichever order you want to do them. Sure. Uh, I think the the thing that I'm most afraid of here is that the children whose parents are least able to advocate uh, for quality education exists, and that was already the case in South Africa, are going to suffer the most. And that they will lose not just six months of education, but an entire year uh, or maybe a year and a half of schooling, given these disruptions. And I think that the biggest worry I have is that that's going to be a long term effect that will live with them for the rest of their lives. Uh, in terms of the biggest hope, 
it would be that we use this time to reflect and say it doesn't have to be this way in terms of both inequalities in infrastructure and inequalities in learning outcomes. Uh, and to quote someone else, we don't waste a good crisis. We use this crisis to actually implement some of the needed reforms uh, around infrastructure at schools, but also teacher development uh, and the way that teachers are trained at universities uh, and trained at schools uh, and that we better off as a result of that. Maki Yankee is the, the, the biggest threat, the greatest opportunity. How do you see the two? I think the biggest threat is um, losing children in the education system as a result of COVID-19. We've seen how universities, um, some universities have given students the option to deregister and come back next year. And the biggest threat is, is seeing such challenges experienced within um, basic education. So I think it's very important that, that government intervenes to make sure that we have all children back and have a, pro, a, a program that will ensure that um, they are able to get up to date with what was necessary for their academic year of learning. The positives um, is the conversations on approaches of approaching technology within the education context. I think the, the pandemic has brought to the fore just how inequalities affected many schools when uh, very few schools were actually able to, 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 to use any form of online learning. But I think this time it gives us an opportunity to relook really how we have been approaching e-learning, that we, there is no need for expensive devices and maybe we should listen to schools and teachers who've actually used basic forms of technology and use a much more people and human-centered approach as opposed to a hardware and software-centered approach to it. Professor Marky Yankees joined us from the University of the Western Cape. We heard as well from Dr. Nick Spool from the University of Stellenbosch. My thanks to both of you for joining us on Beyond Corona. It's been really interesting. This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation.